you're new to Christ Church, we're in a series in the Gospel of Luke. Uh, it's what we typically do. We go through books of the Bible verse by verse. And the past through, uh, few weeks, as we've been going through Luke, we've, we've encountered some difficult passages. One of the, the reasons we preach through entire books of the Bible is it, it keeps us from skipping over the parts of Scripture that, that we find challenging. Well, this morning we encounter another challenging portion of Scripture. But although difficult, I believe Jesus has something for us. Although challenging, there's incredible grace that Jesus wants to impart to us through the text this morning. So let's read Luke chapter 16, and we'll be in verses 19 through 31. It says, There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen, and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I'm in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things. And Lazarus, in like manner, bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed, in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house. For I have five brothers, so that he may warn them lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to him, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Now may God bless the reading and the preaching of His Word. What do you want your life to look like? That's what Harvard University asked their students in one of their MBA programs uh, as the students were getting ready to graduate. They asked the students to create a strategic plan for their lives and answer the question, what did they want their lives to look like after graduation? What, what did they hope to achieve. These were some of the, the best and the brightest men and women in our country. Obviously, to graduate from Harvard is just an incredible accomplishment, even more so with an MBA. And what opportunity they had to use their, their God-given gifts and abilities and to, to take the newly acquired skills they had and to, to go out into the world and, and make a difference. Their future was bright. Well, after the students created these strategic plans 
for their lives, Harvard decided to compile the results. They wanted to see what these students wanted to do with themselves. Well, the, the results were, were interesting. What did the best and brightest of our country want to achieve in their lives? Well, the, the top three answers, wealth, notoriety, and status. They want to be rich, famous, and treated like someone special. What was most interesting about this study, though, was what wasn't on the list. Not one single student said anything about serving others or helping others. Not one. Now, friends, before we start judging these students, I think this, this test by Harvard says more about our human condition as a whole than it does what kind of people are graduating from Harvard University. Unfortunately, one of the effects of mankind's fall into sin is we can all struggle with selfishness, right? We lose sight of the, the needs and the cares of, of those around us, and we, we get fixated on, on number one, on, on ourselves. And we, we take this inherent selfishness into all areas of our lives, our finances, our jobs, our relationships, our marriages, all are affected by our, our own self-focus. For me, one of the, the most incredibly helpful insights about our, our inherent selfishness and what the fall of man has done to us came from the Puritan theologian Jonathan Edwards. Uh, at least to me, this alone is worth the price of admission. So I'm going to read this slowly. I don't want to, you to miss what I'm saying here. But he said, the ruin that the fall brought upon the soul of man consists very much in his losing the nobler and more benevolent principles of his nature and falling wholly under the power and government of self-love. Before, and as God created him, he was exalted and noble. This is talking about man. And generous, but now he is debased and ignoble and selfish immediately upon the fall of man, the mind of man shrank from its primitive greatness and expandedness to an exceeding smallness and contractedness. In other words, do you get what he's saying here, friend? He's saying we were created as these large, noble-hearted, generous creatures, but sin has turned us in on ourselves. Our hearts have, have shriveled up we are now selfish creatures, like what it says of the, the Grinch who stole Christmas about his heart. It's what? Two sizes too small. Our hearts have shrunk from the size they were created to be. So the question our text addresses this morning is how can we, as the people of God, when we're so prone to selfishness, how can we get outside ourselves? How can we overcome our smallness of heart and our selfishness and live lives that serve others. The word we're going to hear a lot this morning is the word mercy. So to define our terms, when we talk about mercy, we mean to, to see someone in some form of suffering, some form of misery, and to be moved by it and to, to seek to do something about it. Martin Lloyd-Jones sums it up well when he says, mercy is pity plus action. It's pity plus action. So how do we as 
sinful, selfish, self-focused people live lives of mercy and service? Well, in our text this morning, Jesus points us to the answer. To give you some context, a few weeks ago we saw in the beginning of Luke chapter 16, Jesus teaching his disciples about the importance of the way we, we handle our finances in a, in a way that honors God. How we can't serve both God and money. But as Jesus taught his disciples, there was this group of religious men known as the Pharisees who were listening in and there was something that he was saying that just really rubbed them the wrong way. Jesus was poking where they didn't want him to be poking. And we are told in verse 14 the the reason why they felt uncomfortable. It says they were lovers of money. And because they were uncomfortable, it says they started to to ridicule him and, and dismiss what he had to say. And Jesus, in our text this morning, responds to them. He wants to to help free these men from the the love of money that was consuming them and its consequences, to free them from the the love of self that had such a hold on their hearts. You see, he's looking upon these men with mercy. Although outwardly these men were wealthy, inwardly they were spiritually bankrupt. He wants to help set them free to, to know the mercy of God and to be the people of mercy that God had called them to be. And as we go through this parable together this morning, our Lord serves us as he points us to our call to be people of mercy and how we can be transformed to be those people. And as we look at our text together, we're we're going to look at three points, really three sections of the text. First, we want to look at the call of mercy, then at the revelation of mercy, and finally, we want to look at the source of mercy call of mercy, revelation of mercy, and the source of mercy. So let's look at our first section, point number one, the call of mercy. In the parable, Jesus tells us we are introduced to to two men, two main characters. We meet the rich man and a poor man named Lazarus. It says in verse 19, the, the rich man was clothed in purple and fine linen. If you're wondering what his preferences and the color of his garments had to do with anything. Well, purple garments were incredibly expensive. Uh, They they were worn by only the the wealthiest of people. Um, There there was a certain sea creature. In order to, to get this purple dye, you had to extract it from this certain sea creature. And it was just incredibly expensive. It was a time-consuming process. Um, So because of that, purple garments became kind of like a status symbol. They were uh, what would be considered, you know, if you had an Armani or or Gucci outfit on today. Well, in verse 19, just to to learn a little bit about this guy and and just the amount of wealth he had, we're, we're told that he didn't just have a purple garment. It says that he was clothed in purple and fine linen. This guy's whole wardrobe was filled with purple garments. We're given insight into how wealthy he was through his eating habits. Jesus tells us he feasted sumptuously every day. The word here translated uh, for, for feasted literally means to, to make merry. It means to, to throw a banquet or a, a party. Typically in, in Jesus' day, to the, 
even for the, the wealthy, feasting was reserved for either the Sabbath or special occasions or, or holidays. But here, this guy is feasting literally every single day. Every day in this guy's house, it was a, a party. Not only was he dressed great and, and, and ate great, but uh, he lived in a beautiful home. We know this because it says that the poor man was, was laid at his gates. And the word used for gate here in the, the Greek is, is the, the type of gate that would be on a palace. It's this kind of large ornamental structure. It's not your, your typical gate. This wasn't your, your typical home. This guy is the, the guy that, that everyone wants to be. They would have loved for a, a reality show to get a, a peek behind his doors to see how the, the rich and famous are living. This guy is the, the Instagram influencer, the guy who by just all accounts has it all together. On the other hand, we're, we're introduced to the poor man. His name is Lazarus, we're told. We read about him in verses 20 and 21. He's the, the complete opposite of the rich man. He's poor, he's destitute, probably crippled as it says he was laid at the rich man's gate. While the, the rich man is clothed with the, the finest of clothes, Lazarus is covered with sores. While the, the rich man eats whatever he wants, Lazarus just hopes for some table scraps to fall from the guy's table and hopefully someone will think about him and give him some of those table scraps. While society would have admired the rich man, Lazarus would have been considered an outcast as, as Jesus points out that even the dogs seem to show him no respect. The dogs jump all over him, they lick him, which would have made him to be considered unclean. If the rich man is who everyone wants to be, Lazarus is the last person you would want to be. In fact, some would consider his life no life at all. Future rabbis encoded what would have been the, the thinking of the day with a system that said if any of these three things happen to you, well, you're, you're actually not even really living. First, if you depend on food from another, well, we know that was the case with Lazarus. Second, if you're ruled by your wife, husband's best not to, to say anything at this moment. It's best to keep quiet here. And third, if you have a body covered with sores. Lazarus has two out of three of these things going for him. To those who are, are listening to Jesus tell this story, they would have thought, clearly this is someone whom God has forsaken. Well, we see in verse 22, Jesus fast forwards to, to what appears to be the end of the story. After some time, they both die. It says the, the rich man is buried. He has a funeral. I'm, I'm sure this would have been a Big, a big affair, no expense would have been spared as all the important people show up to pay their respects. Friends and family spend days mourning and, and eulogizing him as would be common in that culture. And we see Lazarus dies, but there's no mention of him being buried. There's no funeral. More than likely, they just disposed of his body in, in just a common grave and, and he's forgotten about. But here is where we, we see the first kind of twist in the plot here. The story actually isn't over. In fact, for Lazarus and the rich man, the story is just beginning. It says in verse 22, the angels come and carry Lazarus off. The man who no one seems to care about, all of a sudden a heavenly entourage is pulling up to take him to heaven. This, this would have been like rolling out the red carpet for him. 
It's the only place in Scripture where we actually see angels carrying somebody to heaven. This is VIP treatment we're talking about here. It says he's taken to Abraham's side. The picture is he's, he's dining with Abraham. Abraham was their, their national hero, the, the father of the nation, perhaps the most admired man in the, the history of Israel. And here Lazarus is seated next to him, but not just seated anywhere. Lazarus is seated in the place of honor at Abraham's side. Think about this. The man who wasn't allowed in the rich man's house while all the parties were going on, who was shut out at his gate. But here, this, this heavenly party, the greatest of all parties, and Lazarus is the, the guest of honor, the seat reserved for the most important of guests. Notice as Jesus is telling this story, Lazarus is the one in the parable who has a name. Rich man's name is, is never mentioned in this parable. Names were incredibly important to them. The fact that Lazarus is named and the rich man isn't is to highlight the importance and the, the significance of Lazarus. In, in none of Jesus' other parables does he actually name somebody. He's not just the, the poor guy that begs outside the, the rich man's gate. No, he's, he's someone important. His name is Lazarus. It means God has helped me. There's significance here. The man who didn't receive help from the rich man, well, God himself is his helper. This man, the one whom Jesus' audience would have assumed forsaken by God, is actually known and loved and cherished and helped by God. And as Jesus tells this story, he wants them to see how, how their own love of money has, has caused them to withhold kindness and mercy to those around them, like Lazarus. To view as insignificant the, the people that God viewed as extremely significant. You see, friends, God is a God who, who loves and identifies with those in need of mercy. With the lowly, with the poor, with the, the vulnerable, with the outsider. In fact, this is a theme we've seen just highlighted over and over again in the Gospel of Luke. Jesus came for those who, according to, to worldly standards would seem like unlikely candidates. God is a God who cares for and loves the lowly. And this, of course, begs the question, well, why? Why does God care for a man like this who seemingly has nothing to offer him? Where does this man's worth come from in God's eyes? And this is a, a question that has really puzzled the world. Where, where does human worth come from? The United Nations at, at one time brought together the world's leading philosophers and, and ethicists to uh, assemble what they called the, the Universal Declaration uh, on Human Rights. In this document, it, it declares the, the inherent dignity of all members of the human family. All people have worth, and, and there was a lot of really helpful things in this, this declaration. But what was troubling about it was how these philosophers came to their conclusions. Ethicist Gilbert uh, Millander writes that while these philosophers were able to agree on many particular claims, they were unable to agree on why these claims were true. You see, the beautiful statement on, on human worth actually had no foundation to it. 
really boiled down to the, the writers of it saw there was worth and dignity in all people, but they, they couldn't tell you why that was the case. But friends, as, as Christians, God has given us this answer. Why would God care about people like Lazarus that others don't? Why do all people have worth and dignity? Proverbs 22.2 says, The rich and the poor meet together. The Lord is the maker of them all. And as the, the maker of us all, rich and poor, He has created us all in His image. And because of that, our, our worth and our value don't come from, from what we own. Our, our worth and value don't come from our, our bank account or, or what tax bracket we're in or, or even from what skills we contribute to society. Our worth and our value come from the fact that we have been created in God's image. And that is why we are called to be people who are merciful to all God's people because the way we treat those created in God's image is as if we are treating God himself that way. And this is clearly shown in uh, Matthew 25, if you re remember this, when we see Jesus talking about at his return and he comes and he welcomes his people into heaven. And this is what he says to them. He says, come you who are blessed by my Father. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. And it says the, the people, they're, they're confused here. They're going, wait, Jesus, when did we see you hungry? When did we see you thirsty? When, when, when did we see you naked and, and clothe you? Jesus says to them, truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the, the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. You see, because these men and women are created in my image, when you serve them, you're really serving me. Their value and their worth are because they are created in the image of God. Here Jesus is showing us through Lazarus how we are called to be those who are merciful to those created in the image of God no matter who they are. If one of our fellow image bearers is suffering, are we moved with compassion? Do we see our, our, our fellow image bearers for who they are valued and loved by God? And do we seek to serve them in, his, in their need as, as we would if we saw Jesus himself in need whose image they're created in? Well, let's look at our, our second point here, the revelation of mercy. Point number two, the revelation of mercy. We see at the end of verse 23, there, there's another shocking twist in the plot. Jesus says the, the rich man also died and, and was buried. Uh, really nothing shocking about this, but, but here it is. It says, and in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. The, the rich man dies and finds himself in hell. And he finds himself in a state of torment and anguish that he can't escape from. He's told no one can leave and, and no one can go to him. And the irony of it all is now he's become the one who's asking for mercy. Here the one who had the ability and power to show mercy to the guy who was 
begging at his gate, but chose rather to ignore him, is, is begging himself for mercy. The one who chose to just ignore the, the suffering of another is asking someone to take mind of, of his suffering. The one who couldn't spare a few crumbs from his table is now hoping for just a few drops of water from Lazarus' table. So he calls out in verse 24, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. But as, but as it says in James 2.13, judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. And the man who showed no mercy here is with, without mercy. He only, only meets judgment. And Abraham in verse 25 explains to him what's going on. He tells him to, to remember how he lived He says, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things and Lazarus bad things, but now he is comforted here and and, and you are in anguish. His point here is that you've lived for these things. You were so fixated on your your riches on earth that that you got your good things. That's what you were after. You you really got, got what you were after, got what you wanted. And as Jesus is telling this story, it, this would have just been mind-blowing to the, the Pharisees that were, were listening to him. Remember, when, when someone was, was wealthy, they would have viewed that as a sign of, of favor and blessing from God. This, this rich guy, this, I thought this was God's guy. He was an Israelite. They, they would have assumed if you were a child of Abraham, you, you were saved. You, you, were, you were good. Hell wasn't for people like, like him. After all, we even see him addressing Abraham as what? Verse 24, he he addresses him as Father Abraham. Grew up singing that song in church. You You know the song if you grew up in church. Father Abraham has many sons. Many sons has Father Abraham. I am one of them, and so are you. So let's just praise the Lord. And 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 don't get me wrong, I I you know I love the song. It's kind of like a you know, it gets you moving all around. It's kind of like a spiritual hokey pokey. But, but the danger is that I'm a son of Abraham based off of my spiritual background. I'm in church, so I must be a son of Abraham. I was born a descendant of Abraham, so I must be a son of Abraham. I must be good. But we're told in Galatians, it says, Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And what Jesus is, is showing them here as he tells this story is that your, your eternal destinies aren't based off of what you're assuming. And, and you've got to get this right. The stakes are, are just too high to get this wrong. You're, you're taking your spiritual temperature with the, the wrong thermometer. Rather than using your money and your, your background to, to judge how you're doing spiritually, Instead, use this diagnostic tool. Do you see mercy in your life? When people experience you, does, does mercy come out? You see, mercy reveals something about us. There's, this, is, this is what the, the revelation of mercy is. We can tell a lot about our heart's spiritual condition by, by mercy. This is what the Apostle John in 1 John was talking about. When he asks the rhetorical question, he says, if, if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? 
And then he says, little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. By this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our hearts before them. How do we know if we are of the truth? How do we know if God's love abides in us? Well, if I don't see mercy, that's, that's a red flag. And in, in this rich man's case, his failure to do anything when seeing his brother in need wasn't a, an, simply an oversight, but it was a revelation of a, a heart that was far from God. How can you love God but, but not care about those suffering that were created in His image? In fact, we, we see the, the hardness of the, the rich man's heart continue to be exposed even after his death. He continues to live out of a sense of superiority to Lazarus. Notice in, in verse 24, he doesn't even address Lazarus. He, he, he speaks to, to Abraham. Hey, Father Abraham, send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water. In the rich man's mind, he's still the beggar. At best, he's the, the errand boy, not worth even talking to. Get the servant to, to do something for me, will you? His heart hasn't changed one bit. It reveals his true spiritual condition. And friends, that's why we need our hearts transformed. This goes much deeper than just doing some, some good deeds. There's a, a depth to our selfishness that, that only God can can help us with, which leads us to our third and final section of the text. Point number three, the source of mercy. Verse 27, the the rich man, realizing that his his fate has really been sealed, all of a sudden is hit with the the realization that that my brothers are on on their way to the, the same place I am. So his request changes from, help me to, you gotta help my brothers. Verse 27, he, he begs Abraham. He says, send Lazarus to my father's house. I have five brothers. He needs to warn them. They're on their way here. And, and friends, for, for a moment, let's just pause and, and consider the irony of what's going on here. Here on one, man, uh, on one hand is a man who clearly loves his family. If his neighbors and those who knew him in his lifetime knew the position he was in right now of God's judgment, they, they would have been absolutely shocked. They would have said, he's, he's such a loving man. He cared so much for his brothers. He was so hospitable. He, he, all those people he had over in his home all the time, all the banquets he threw. He was so generous. He was a, a real people person. But at the, the same moment, he's showing this, this love and care for his, his family members He's still being incredibly callous and hard-hearted to Lazarus. He continues to dehumanize him. He's still bossing him around like he's superior. Too good to even talk to him. Abraham, send him to do my bidding. And isn't this just such a clear picture of the, the brokenness of humanity? We can be hero and monster in the same person. The, the hateful person can be kind. The thief can be generous. The one who doesn't care about the suffering of some cares tremendously about the suffering of others. 
And, and it's because of this, this mixture of, of good and bad that, that we are as humans, it can be so hard for us just to, to see our, our true spiritual condition. We cover over the, the bad with the good. Our default assumption is that, that we're all really good people, not deserving of judgment. Yeah, you know, there's the, the Hitlers and the, the Stalins, clearly they are, but besides that, we're, we're not that bad, we're actually pretty good. And because of that, no one in our mind is ever deserving of God's just, justice, especially not us. That's why when we read a passage like this, it makes us un, uncomfortable. But, but think about it. What if God operated this way? Wouldn't it just be a, a tragedy of justice for God to look at this man and say, you know what, all those years you were, you were so loving to your family, I'm going to ignore the way you ignored the plight of and suffering and the anguish of Lazarus. The fact that you allowed him to rot away in pain and misery, though you clearly could have helped him and it would have really required no sacrifice on your part. But either way, you know, I'll, I'll let your good outweigh the bad. You're, you're a good brother after all. You're, you're a really friendly guy. You have all kinds of people over your house. Friends, that, that would not be justice and God wouldn't be good if he turned a, a blind eye to our sin. And that's why Abraham in verse 29, he, he points them to where he does. He says, they have Moses and the prophets. They need to hear them. And, and it's so important here that we understand what, what Abraham is getting at. He's not just pointing them to, hey, here's what you need to do. Here's the law. Do this and you'll, you'll be okay. Notice what he says. He says, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. In other words, what he's saying is although Moses, although they have Moses and the prophets, although they're well acquainted with, with what they have to say, they, they may be listening, but they're not really hearing what they have to say. You see, to, to this man and his brothers and the Pharisees to whom Jesus was talking, they, they prided themselves in Moses and the prophets. To say you, you need to, to hear Moses and the prophets would have been like, wait, what are you talking about, man? That's, that's all we hear. We saw a couple of weeks ago earlier in, in chapter 16 how Jesus calls out the Pharisees for the, the way they were relating to the law and prophets. In verse 15, he said, you are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. You see, what was, was happening was they were using God's law in a way that it was never intended to be used. They used it as kind of this spiritual checklist. It had become a way for them to feel good about themselves and to congratulate themselves. It became a way, as Jesus said, for them to justify themselves. I've attained they had the law and the prophets, but, but they really weren't listening in the way they needed to. And we see that in, in the rich man's answer in verse 30. He, he doesn't like the answer. He says, no, no, you, you got it all wrong. We've tried the law and Moses thing. We know all about it. Look where it got us. He says, Wait, I, I got an idea. If someone goes to them from the dead, that'll work. That's what they need. And... Again, Abraham in verse 31 points them back to the law and Moses, Moses and the prophets. He says, if they won't hear Moses and the prophets, they won't be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. 
Friend, this is what they need. God's word is sufficient. Let them hear Moses and the prophets. In 2 Timothy, the Apostle Paul, as he's writing to Timothy, says in verse 15 of of chapter 3, how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which at that time would have been Moses and the prophets, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. It's the, the, the Moses and the prophets that, that make us wise for salvation. And then Paul says to him, all Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for, for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. See, what they need to see is not someone showing up from the dead. They don't need signs and wonders. They... They need to hear what the Scriptures are really saying. The Scriptures correct us, it says here. They, they reprove us. They're not here to just make us feel good about ourselves so we can justify ourselves. Oh, you're, you're so righteous. No, they were pointing them all along to their need for Jesus. That's why in Galatians it calls the, the law, it says the law is like a tutor that leads us to Christ. And it's as if when we read God's Word, it's almost as, as if the law is standing over our shoulder, tutoring us, saying, see that? That's why you need a Savior. Yeah, that law that, that you broke there, that's why you need mercy. Let me tell you about the one who's coming who will bring that mercy, who will take your sins upon Himself. And the law and the prophets over and over again just keep pointing us to our need for rescue, pointing us to the Savior to come. That's why Jesus in John 5.39 says, you search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. All the Scriptures, Moses and the prophets, they point us to Christ. They show us our need for mercy, but then they point us to our need for the merciful one. Yes, Jesus will show up risen from the dead and the the dead man will will get his wish. But even then, if they don't see their need for a Savior, if they don't see their need for mercy, it's not going to make a difference. That's why Jesus could perform all the miracles in the world and there was those that continued to just harden their hearts. You see, friends, Jesus wanted the Pharisees that he was addressing to see the rich man in themselves to see their need for mercy. And for ourselves this morning, I I know I'm a lot more like the rich man than I'd like to think. I've failed to help others in their suffering when I've had the ability to do so. I mean, think about all the spiritually lost and hungry around me and and the spiritual riches I have in Christ, and, and I can ignore that fact. I've hurt others because of my sin. If, as Jesus said, the the law and and prophets can be summed up in loving our neighbor as ourselves and loving God with all our heart, soul, and mind, my goodness, that I've broken this law in so many, many ways. Friends, I need to hear what Moses and the prophets are really telling me to see again my need for mercy, my need for a Savior We need to hear what Jesus wants to say to us. We are people that need mercy. 
And that's why we need to be really careful with how we hear God's Word. Please don't go from here and, and we hear a message about our need for mercy and, we, and, and there's a temptation to kind of want to run out and go, okay, I just got to do mercy things. If, if, we, if, if we do that, we could be missing the point. We, we may have listened to, the, to Mo, Moses and the prophets, but we haven't really heard what they're saying. If we leave today and we simply wonder, okay, what kind of mercy can I add to my calendar? Maybe I can sign up for the, the soup kitchen or increase my giving a little bit. Uh, are, we, we, we miss the point. Are we called to be merciful? Absolutely. Should we think about how to apply this text? Yes, absolutely. But if that is where we start, we can be making the same mistake as the Pharisees. All of a sudden, doing mercy things can be our means of justifying ourselves. If I do enough, hopefully God will be pleased with me. If I'm merciful enough. Friends, we are saved and we are accepted by God, not by our works of mercy, but by a God who is rich in mercy. A Savior who died for our lack of mercy, who lived a life of complete mercy in our place. That's where we need to start. And as we believe in that mercy, and as we revel in that mercy, and as we bask in that mercy, and remember that mercy, then we are changed into merciful people. Just like the, the Grinch with his, his shrunken heart, all of a sudden when he realizes what, what Christmas is really all about, it says his heart grows three sizes, and he goes out and then spreads his, his Christmas cheer. It's when we understand the mercy of Christ to us that our hearts are enlarged and we go and we spread mercy to those around us. To borrow one more time just the, the imagery of Jonathan Edwards, although it's through the experiencing the mercy of the gospel that our, our shrunken, selfish, contracted hearts expand once again. Praise God for His mercy that changes merciless people and makes them merciful. In closing, I uh, just want to share this, this hymn. It's been running through my head all week as I've been meditating on this text. I, I hesitated to do it. Last time I preached, I closed with a hymn, and I didn't want to always be the guy that closes with hymns, but I felt like this was too good to, to, to pass up here. So it's called, Thy Mercy, My God. It says, Thy mercy, my God, is the theme of my song, the joy of my heart and boast of my tongue. Thy free grace alone from the first to the last has won my affections and bound my soul fast. Without thy sweet mercy, I could not live here. Sin soon would reduce me to utter despair. But through thy free goodness, my spirits revive. And he that first made me still keeps me alive. Thy mercy is more than a match for my heart, which wonders to feel its own hardness depart. Dissolved by thy goodness, I fall to the ground and weep to the praise of the mercy I've found. The door of thy mercy stands open all day to the needy and poor who knock by the way. No sinner shall ever be empty sent back who comes seeking mercy for Jesus' sake. Thy mercy in Jesus exempts me from hell. Its glories I'll sing and its wonders I'll tell. Twas Jesus my all 
as he hung on the tree who opened the channel of mercy for me. Praise God that he has opened the channel of mercy for us. Brothers and sisters, let us sing and tell and live out the wonders of his mercy, sharing the riches that we have in Christ. Let's pray.